from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Both of our guests today are working toward a better world when it comes to pain. But as you might have come to expect from this show, they're approaching it from two very different directions. One studies toxic animals for clues on how to build better painkillers. The other studies social media to better understand how people communicate about chronic pain. The venomologist and the behavioral scientist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. A couple of years ago, I hit an aspen tree while skiing, and even before I stopped moving, I knew my leg was badly broken. And I also knew I was lucky to be alive. I still feel lucky, but with a big piece of metal in my leg, I feel something else. Every day of my life, I am in pain. As we always do on this program, we recruited today's guests from two very different fields of science without regard to how they'd match up. But as sometimes happens, once we take a look at what they actually do, we began seeing connections pretty quickly. Joining us in studio this morning is Helena Savavi, an assistant professor of biochemistry at the University of Utah and one of the authors of a recent article in the Journal of Proteomics about the potential of venom peptides from cone snails as a resource for providing a continuous pipeline for the discovery of non-opioid therapeutics, painkillers. Helena, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. Also joining us on the phone from her home in Virginia is Janine Guidry, whose recent study in the journal Health, Education, and Behavior uncovers the ways in which people who are suffering from chronic pain use social media to share and get self-care tips, to build networks of support, and to vent about their tribulations. Janine, thanks for being with us today. Great to be here. We'll start today with the venomologist. You all know that sound. It means that a big, deadly animal is approaching. But I want you to put something a little different in your head. Instead of visualizing the approach of a big, ravenous, toothy shark, think instead about a colorful little sea snail. I know, it doesn't sound very scary, right? But consider this. Cone snails are some of the world's deadliest animals. Some are so toxic that they can paralyze their prey instantly. And one species has gotten the nickname cigarette snail because, as legend has it, once you've been stung by one of them, you only have time to smoke one cigarette before you're dead. Helena Safavi, in your recent review, you and your collaborators pointed out that, aside from in some cases being quite deadly, Every species of cone snail, and there are more than 800 known species, has evolved a very different combination of venom peptides. And each species has a repertoire of up to 400 peptides. That's a lot of peptides. How do you even know where to start when you want to exploit these for things like building pharmaceuticals? People used to just start with whatever they could find. So you would go to your local beach and try to collect whatever cone snail you can find there. So you're never going to find the 800 species in one single spot. Um, Now that we know a lot more about these animals and the way they prey, um, we can specifically look for the ones that we are very interested in. So we're looking for cone snails that, for example, uh, appear to sedate their prey. So they release compounds into the water and then the prey appears very sedated, cannot swim away anymore. And that gives us clues that um, this, the snail is using compounds to silence some circuits in the prey that could be involved in pain. 
Do you get to participate in the collection of the cone snails? Because that sounds like the really fun part of the job. That's correct. I do. Um, So once a year, we go somewhere really nice. So fortunately to us, these snails live in the tropics. So it's always kind of beautiful places that we go to, mostly in the Philippines, but also Hawaii. This sounds like really rough duty. (laughs) It's hard. Cone snail venoms are a really rich source of binding molecules that impact the nervous system. Why does that make them a good target for pharmaceutical exploitation? So it turns out that our bodies are extremely complex, right? We, have, we, we make our own molecules, a lot of them, and they interact with each other and our cells interact with each other in various ways. And it's really difficult to manipulate that and to come up with compounds that could potentially do that. These snails have been doing this for millions of years, so they have evolved compounds to specifically target receptors in the prey. So by learning how they have done it, we can get a lot better of predicting how we can do those things. Venomous snails in general haven't been completely ignored by researchers, but cone snails are part of a super family of animals. And there are entire other families of toxic mollusks that have hardly been studied at all. What are the major obstacles preventing further research into all of these other animals? So I think we're right now at a very good time where technology has advanced rapidly over the last four to five years. In the past, it used to be really hard to identify. So once you collect a cone snail or another marine snail, how do you know what it's being made in its body? And that used to be very difficult, technically difficult. So for the past four or five years, the technologies for protein and DNA sequencing have been revolutionized. And we're just working on this topic at the right period of time. We also get better at collecting these things. What have scientists and drug developers been able to do with cone snail venom so far? The one famous example that was actually discovered here at the University of Utah by Toto Oliveira and Michael McIntosh is Prealt, which is a compound from the cone snail conus magus, or the magician cone. It's an approved drug for the treatment of intractable pain. Uh, It's been used at the Huntsman Cancer Institute for terminal cancer patients. It's a very useful drug for pain. Then we recently discovered an insulin in cone snail venom that we're hoping to develop as a drug for um, the treatment of diabetes. There's a story, I think kind of it's becoming kind of a, a famous story about how they started extracting cone snail venom at the University of Utah using a condom. Do you know this story? <laughs> yes, I do. Can, can you tell the story? I tr- I'll try, <laughs> but you might have to jump in and continue. So the way um, you can either um, sacrifice the snail and dissect the venom gland, that's the tissue, the organ that makes venoms, or if you want to maintain the snail in the tank, you somehow have to make it prey so you can catch the venom as it comes out of the snail. And one way to do it is to hold a fish in front of the snail so it starts to eject its venom, but then you want to capture that venom at the same time. So you hold a small little tube that is uh, the opening is covered by a condom in front of the uh, the snail while it's trying to pierce the fish. And instead of piercing the fish, if you hold the tube correctly, it'll pierce through the condom uh, into the tube and will release the venom into the tube. And is this a technique that you use still, or is there is there a more developed technique at this point? So I have not done that yet. <laughs> so we are fortunate that now that the technologies are so advanced that we can um, sacrifice a single animal from one species and quickly learn about the entire com- components of its venom. Can you explain how drugs developed with cone snail venom work, particularly as opposed to how opioids work? 
Right. So this particular example of the drug that has been approved by the um, Food and Drug Administration uh, uses a completely different way to silence pain. So opioids work through opioid um, receptors. And if you use opioids over a longer period of time, you will constantly have to increase the dose because you become desensitized to the dose you're currently using. Plus, uh, there's this addictive response that people don't fully understand yet. The one drug that has been approved that is from cone venoms is is not addictive. You do not have to increase the dose just because the mechanism of action is very different. It has other uh, shortcomings that I'm happy to discuss, um, but it's not addictive and you don't need to increase the dose over time. Let's talk a little bit about those shortcomings, but let's also talk about the potential perhaps that another species or many species of cone snail or these related mollusks might be able to help us attack those shortcomings, yes? Yes, that's correct. So the current shortcomings with the drug that is approved are that in certain patients, it can induce paranoia and other uh, mental diseases. And so that's not desired. Um, it only happens in some patients, but you don't know until you try it. Um, so typically, it's only used for patients that do not respond to opioids anymore. The new drugs that we're trying and hoping to develop do not show these side effects, at least in animal studies. We haven't put those into humans yet. Another side effect that is a little funny, at least when you hear about it, is that patients tend to hear music when there's none. And for some reason, it seems to be country music that they're hearing. And I don't know why that is. <laughs> um, you know, these peptides, they might not just be good as the building blocks for painkillers, right? You mentioned that there may be diabetes medications that potentially could come out of this research. Can you talk about that? So there's a particular snake called Conus geographus. So a few years ago, um, we found that this particular snail is making insulin in its venom. And that was the first time um, people had described that insulin was being used outside of normal bodily function. And it turns out that this insulin is very fast acting, which is a current limitation in diabetes treatment. Um, so what we've done with this is to try to design a drug based on, on that initial discovery. Do you ever find yourself just feeling a bit overwhelmed by the power of evolutionary forces to create such incredibly complex solutions to the challenges of survival? That's a very nice question. So I haven't felt overwhelmed, but whenever we find something new, I just cannot stop being amazed by what evolution has created. And we're really having a hard time understanding how that's even possible. That's Helena Safavi, whose recent review in the Journal of Proteomics discusses the potential of venom peptides from cone snails and related species as a potential pipeline for non-opioid therapeutics. That is the Taylor Swift parody song, Make It All, which details one woman's obsession with Pinterest. And yeah, there's plenty on Pinterest. It could only generously be called a big waste of time. But the social media site with more than 250 million users is also home to some pretty cool ideas. And increasingly, it has been a go-to place for users to find communities of interest and information and inspiration. It's also where our next guest started her search for how people suffering from chronic pain are using social media to cope. Janine Gedry. Facebook seems to be the go-to place for social scientists. Twitter's data exploration functions are pretty robust. You wanted to study the way people use social media to cope with pain. So I'm wondering, what drew you to Pinterest? I have been interested for the past five, six years in 
what we call the more visual social media platforms, Pinterest, Instagram, um, Snapchat now. Uh, obviously, you can post visuals on pretty much any social media platforms, but these platforms require you to post a visual. And we know from a psychology background that we process visuals differently than we process text. We remember messages longer, more accurately. We're more likely to act on them if a message includes a visual addition to text. And so that's always been something of interest to me. One of the reasons I think why it's been understudied is, number one, social media is still so new. So my interest has been for a while now these platforms that really aren't studied as much and also that really require a visual to be present. I started out with some studies on vaccines, infectious diseases, and then I wanted to take a look at more chronic diseases and chronic disease manifestations. And chronic pain is, is a huge issue in our society started collecting data, and that's uh, that's where the study was born. And you looked at more than 500 posts that dealt with chronic pain. What jumped out at you at first blush? The first thing that, that jumped out is that almost 100% of all the posts were posted by individuals. And Pinterest is a lot like other platforms like Instagram, where in general, posts tend to become more commercial. They tend to come from organizations. It's almost look used as an advertising platform when you're dealing with, say, recipes. But in this case, 98% of all the posts in the sample originated with individual accounts. The second thing is that almost 100% of all posts also connected to an external website. There were a lot of resources that people were referring other people to. The public health and the health sphere was really not not present. And so it's concerning in the sense that we could be using Pinterest a whole lot better from a public health and a health communication perspective. A lot of the focus of these posts was on self-care. What did you learn about the way people talk about and think about self-care when it comes to chronic pain? Like you said, there was a lot of mention of self-care. There were a lot of tips. People were talking a lot about how bad their pain was, but they also provided solutions. They also provided tips. So it wasn't just a venting situation. It really was kind of encouraging to see that even though we're missing a public health voice in this, and I think we should do something about that, the platform was used in a fairly healthy way. You also honed in on the difference in the rate at which posts were focused on problem-solving coping versus emotion-focused coping. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? The issue we have when you try to analyze social media posts is that even though Pinterest allows more than 280 characters like Twitter does, you're still looking at fairly short posts. There's a limit to the depth a lot of times in which you can analyze, but one way we analyze the coping was to say, okay, well, are people addressing the problem? Emotion-focused coping could be dealing with I am so desperate, I am so discouraged, I don't know what to do, and trying to, to connect on an emotional level. You saw more more of one of these types of coping uh, inherent in the posts that you were studying. We saw more problem-focused coping, which was a really good thing. Almost half of the sample, half of the pins, actually refer to a form of problem-focused coping. There was also, you noted in in the study a lot more venting than accepting. And again, without making a value judgment here, what do you think the role of venting is when it comes to people dealing with chronic conditions? I think in some ways, venting on 
a platform like this can provide a form of release, just getting it all out. As long as venting is not something that there's no solution at the end of it, there's no move to, is there anything I can do about it? I think it can be something that is actually quite healthy. What it felt like is that it was more a protective community where people really supported each other. The venting then takes up the role of actually getting social support from somebody else, from another user on the platform. What are the next steps in your research? What are the questions that you want to continue asking and and getting answers to when it comes to social media and the role of social media for people suffering from chronic pain or other health conditions? The first thing is that we still, there's so much we don't know because social media has been around for relatively a short period of time. There's more that we need to know about how people are using it. The next step as far as I'm concerned, we'd like to look at some different platforms and then we would like to actually talk to chronic pain sufferers who use social media and ask them what are their experiences, what is actually helpful for them. So really finding out more what is beneficial to this and is this something we can utilize. The concern for me, and this goes not just for chronic pain, but for almost all health issues that I've looked at on these visual platforms is that we're really not present as health communication and public health organizations, mental health organizations, and that we're really losing a way to reach out. We're losing a way to hear about what patients feel like, what their concerns are, and we're losing a way to reach out to people. We've all seen where social media can go off the rails. And I think that is something we need to understand more. Where do messages come from? How do they work? And... um, Really, the starting point for that is being present. That's Janine Guidry, whose recent study in the journal Health, Education, and Behavior uncovers the way in which people who are suffering from chronic pain use Pinterest. Janine, I'd love to introduce you to someone whose work also deals with pain, but in a very different way. Sound good? Sounds great. Janine, this is venomologist and cone snail aficionado Helena Safavi. And Helena, this is behavioral scientist and Pinterest purveyor Janine Guidry. Hi, Janine. Hi, Helen. It's so nice to meet you. Nice um, to meet you you said you're from Germany. Yes. I'm uh, from Amsterdam. Oh, there you go. So <laughs> I was like, wait, I'm, I'm talking to a neighbor. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about when I was talking to Janine was the idea of the importance of hope to people who suffer from chronic conditions. And Helena, what you're doing, even though it's applications in terms of pharmaceuticals, is probably a long ways off. What you're doing, I think, offers hope to people. I wonder if you've thought about your job in that way at all. Yes, I have. And it's partly because, you know, now that people are recognizing our work more and more, I do get emails from people that suffer from chronic pain quite frequently. I really think that a lot of people are helpless. And I think that's probably what Janine was describing that drives them to post or vent on social media platforms where if they go and see their physician or even their family and friends, people get tired of hearing about chronic pain when there's very little one can do about it. That's a real shortcoming right now. And we're hoping to solve that sometime in the future, but it's not going to happen fast enough for the people that are currently suffering. I was noticing some of the same things. I think one of the things that is so important in today's science is interdisciplinary work. I think especially with chronic pain patients, that is something that is lacking because the pain just doesn't go away by definition. The pain just keeps going and going. And a lot of times there's not a really good solution. It's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. And I think that is where the research should and the practice should connect. 
there are currently no really good solutions out there, right? I think it's kind of good for people that suffer from chronic pain to hear that because I think if you don't have chronic pain and somebody in your family constantly tells you about their pain because that's all they can think about, people tend to get annoyed, right? So I think it's important to realize that there are currently, for a lot of people, no good solutions. And that has to come from the scientific community or from physicians. They have to acknowledge that people are suffering without a good solution. And I think then knowing that there are options that are being worked on. And even though those options may not come to, you know, production until maybe years from now, it's still a better situation than, well, I don't think there's anything that's really changing. And I think a lot of times we're just not communicating that well enough. I have a question, Janine, about the the posts that you read. What are the visual, um, what are the images people post when they suffer from pain? I'd be interested to hear that. Good question. Yeah, so the type that was used the most was text and image combined, sort of like a meme to where you would have a photo with text superimposed. And a lot of times it would be like a quote talking about uh, the frustration of dealing with chronic pain or the severity of chronic pain. Sometimes it would be the seven tips for better sleep with chronic pain superimposed over a picture. But the interesting thing is that the type of visual that was associated with the highest engagement were infographics. The the type of visual that pr- provide the most information. That's interesting. So people are really actively looking for help by posting these things. I, I think so. And I think on one hand, a lot of the memes are focused on venting and focused on this is just frustrating, but the posts that got the most engagement are the posts that actually provide something for people mm-hmm. to grasp onto. Here are some things that maybe I can do that will make things a little bit better. Do you remember any of the things that. that people found really helpful? There were a lot of posts on how to relax, how to sleep better. One of the, the main issues that we found that people are dealing with that they describe in these posts is that sleeping tends to be a big issue because The pain just prevents people from relaxing enough to actually get into a deeper sleep. Do you see any danger of people all of a sudden suggesting a certain medication? or? Yes, and we didn't study these first for misinformation, but from looking at all 500 of them, there really wasn't a lot of identified misinformation. However, the reason why this is so concerning, we've done a number of studies on vaccines on Pinterest. 75% basically say vaccines cause autism, vaccines are unsafe. Now, Pinterest took action in the past few weeks, and they actually blocked all searches for the word vaccine and vaccination. I I think that's a concern, especially because the platform tends to be isolated. So yes, I think that's a big concern. And in terms of data collection, can you just go in and retrieve the data? And if you're thinking about actually talking to people in the future, which I I think it would be fascinating to find out why they post things on Pinterest rather than going and seeing their doctor and talking to their friends and family. Can you just retrieve that data and reach out to people? Yes and no. The struggle with Pinterest is that there's not an automated way in place. Pinterest has not made it available to collect data. So we depend on manual data collection. Pinterest, just like most social media platforms, doesn't require users to provide a lot of personal information. And so that information usually is not available to us, which is a good thing in the area of privacy. What we are looking at doing is to do a panel study. So to use a specific panel of a, of a survey company to reach people who use Pinterest and who deal with a certain issue like chronic pain. 
what I've like started to find fascinating now where we you know, we mostly work in the lab where biochemists and scientists, we never really engage with patients at all. And so over the past few months, I've started to actually talk to people that are suffering from pain. And it's been really a very steep learning experience. And I think that brings us back to what you said about multidisciplinary approach. I think it's fantastic to bring all these different disciplines together. And that does involve the people that, you know, we're claiming to care about, right? Uh, who are the people yeah. that are suffering from pain? You know, both of us in our specific fields, those are the people we're trying to help. Ultimately, we're trying to provide people with a better way of managing their pain. I think you're right. I think it's really easy to sort of get into our own research bubble is what I call it for myself. But really being able to connect with patients and seeing why are we doing this? Why does this matter so much? How how hard it is for people, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And I think if we do that and we have this way of reaching out to each other as fellow scientists in different areas of science to develop this more and further and perhaps even quicker to where ultimately we can help people on a very practical level. Yeah, yeah I, I love that. that. Hel- Helena, you mentioned that you have started, as as your research has become more known, you've started to get emails from people who are suffering from chronic pain. And on the one hand, uh, I think what this discussion has shown is that like this connectivity between what you're doing and, and the idea of giving people hope. But there's probably a lot of pressure to that too, right? When you hear from someone, does it make you frustrated? Because the pace of research, especially drug discovery and development, is very slow for, for very good reason. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to, it takes me a long time to reply to these emails just because I want to make, you know, I, I agree with what Janine said. It's good to have hope, but at the same time, you have to be realistic about what to expect from research. And it's mostly because the regulations that are in place are very tight and that's important. You don't want to start treating people with things that then turn out to have very severe side effects later on. So it does take me a long time to reply to these emails. Uh, you have to be very sensitive about, you want people to be hopeful, but still realistic about what to expect. We're just about out of time. Helena Safavi, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you so much for having me. And Janine Guidry, thank you. Thank you so much. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>